are, are just about done. I mean, he came here for a specific purpose. Uh, he came here to die on a cross, and we studied that in, in depth a few weeks ago. He came here to raise from the dead, to, to provide us life and hope. And, and those works, those things that he's done, that we've studied them, and, and they, are, they are finished. They were things that happened in a point in history. Um, and, and, and they're true. But it's, a, it's a, an unbelievable story when you really think about it. I mean, really think about this. I mean, to imagine someone who was dead in the grave for three days to be alive again. Well, what's the most unbelievable story you've ever heard? I mean, think about it. And I'm not talking about an amazing story like some fisherman caught a fish this big, you know, or, and then he tells a story a few times and it's this big. But I'm not talking about an amazing story about how somebody did something that was just beyond them, like a mother lifting a piano off of her child. I'm not talking about amazing. I'm talking about unbelievable. The most unbelievable story you've ever heard. Think about it. I've, I've got a story that I tell, and if you've been around me very long, you've probably heard it. I'll tell it again because I don't think everybody here's heard it. But it, it, it blew me away the first time I heard it. I had gone to China. It's my first year there. And we met a Chinese Christian woman who she had faith that was just amazing. I mean, she was strong in her faith. She was an evangelist in a very um, oppressive environment. And when we met her, it was obvious that she loved Jesus and that he had changed her drastically. And so we met with her. Well, her, her, her father was sick, and her, her biggest wish was really that she could get home to her father. She lived in a village some distance away from her father. And it didn't have, it's, it's not like here you jump in your car and you go to the next village over and you, know, you hang out with your family and you go home. I mean, this was a big deal for her to get to where he was at. But she wanted to get there. She wanted to tell her father about Jesus because she could not stand the idea of him dying and not having heard the story. She wanted him to believe what she believed. She wanted him to know the truth. And so she asked us if we would pray with her. There was a group of us. There was about, I think it was about eight of us and then another missionary that lived there full time. And we stood around her. We, we put our hands on her and we just prayed. We prayed that God would use her, that he would make it possible, that she would be there and, and be able to share with her father this 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 truth that he needed to hear. We get home, and you know, the, the, the mission trip ends. We get home. We don't really hear for a little while what's going on, but then we get a report from the missionary that she had made it to the village, but that her father had died a couple of days before she got there. And she felt compelled to go, and she put her hands on him, and she prayed, and he came back to life. I'm not kidding you. That's what the missionary told us. And that, I'm going to tell you what, that blew me away. Now, I trusted this missionary. I, 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 I knew him. I, I felt confident in the things that he was telling me. But I'm going to tell you, as soon as he said that he came back to life, I was like, come on, wait a minute. What are, you, are you just trying to get us to tell this story so more people will come to China and, and help do this work? Are you just trying to pump your numbers of people coming into China and spreading the gospel? You know, what's the motivation behind this? What was that all about? Somebody didn't want to hear this story. But, but what, what are you doing? You know, what, what's your purpose in this? What's your motivation? And, and I'm telling you, I was doubting it. I didn't want to believe him. In my Western mind, that just doesn't happen, you know. But it, it has affected me in a deep way because as I began to think about it and began to be challenged by it, I mean, really, this is, I, I tell this jokingly, but it really entered my mind was that, that line from Princess Bride. You know, where Wesley, the hero, was just mostly dead. Have you ever seen that movie? Oh, he's just mostly dead, you know. And so they start pumping him with air, and, and they, he comes back to life. That's what entered my mind. 
As I thought about it, I, I, I became ashamed. I was like, wait a minute. You believe in a Christ who was dead in the grave for three days. Who's said to have been risen. It brings us back to that same place that we were at last week when, whenever, whenever Paul says, if there is no resurrection for the, from the dead, then Jesus is not raised. And if Jesus is not raised, we have no hope. And I suddenly was confronted with the truth that if I didn't want to believe in this, then how in the world could I believe in the resurrection of my Christ? I was ashamed. But it was an unbelievable story. I mean, imagine when the most unbelievable thing you've ever heard it's so easy for us to sit in our churches today and hear people talking about the resurrection. This man was dead. He was in the ground. He was dead and gone. By all appearances, he was done. A stone was rolled in front of the grave and guards were, st were, were posted to, to make sure no one came and took the body. And on that Sunday morning, these, these women come to the tomb. And it's empty. There's no one there except for the grave clothes. That's the only thing there, the grave clothes laying there. And Mary Magdalene, she's, she's concerned. I mean, she is distraught. This woman, I just want you to know, this woman loves Jesus. She loved him with a deep, deep, abiding devotion. She gets concerned. She's distraught. And she takes off running. She runs to the first people she thinks of, Peter and John. And she goes to him, they've taken his body. He's gone. What are we going to do? Peter and John, well, what? He took his body? And they take off running. John outruns Peter. He gets there and he's, he, he looks inside and he sees the same thing, an empty tomb. Peter gets there and being the guy he is, you know, he just barges in. He doesn't think about things a lot. He just does them and then deals with the consequences, the, the things that fall out of it. He just barges in. He looks around and he's, man, he's gone. That's an unbelievable story crazy and last week we saw that as john steps into the tomb after peter gets there he's inside he steps into the tomb and he looks he sees the grave clothes and he sees the cloth that was laid on his face folded neatly and he believes now there's a lot of debate we talked about this a little last week there's a lot of debate about what john believed there's a lot of talk about it among theologians I'm of the opinion that John believed that Jesus was no longer dead. I don't know that John understood that he was going to see Jesus later that day. I don't know that John thought Jesus was going to spend some more time with him here on earth. But I believe that John knew that Jesus wasn't stolen. That, that his body hadn't been taken by someone. That, that some miraculous thing had happened. And that Jesus was alive. Probably thought that he had ascended to the Father. You know, there's stories from their traditions, from their scriptures, there were stories of, of men who were just taken to heaven and, and, and never seen again. And, and so I, I think that John believed that Jesus was alive, that he had risen. Well, Peter and John, they get up, they, 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 they see what they see, and they go home. And honestly, that, that's really where we pick up the story. That's, that's where we see and begin to see Jesus begin to reveal himself. And show himself to people. Blow them away. And bring to them some understanding and some, some uh, faith in the midst of this extremely unbelievable story. John chapter 20, we're going to begin reading in verse 11. Now let, me, let me go back to 10. Then the disciples went back to their home. That's Peter and John. They leave. They go back to their homes. But Mary... 
stood weeping outside the tomb. And she wept, and as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb. Now John and Peter have already been in there. They've already seen. that They were just there, and it was empty. She stoops to look into the tomb, and she saw two angels in white sitting there with the body of Jesus, <clears throat> where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. And they said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? And she said to them, They have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. She is upset about this. She doesn't, she doesn't see the evidence. She doesn't understand that the robbers went to come in and taken the grave clothes and neatly folded this, this face cloth that was on his face. She looks in and all she sees is the absence of his physical presence. And she's distraught. She's upset. They've taken my Lord and I do not know where they have laid him. And having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing. But she did not know that it was Jesus. And Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? And supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. And Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned to him and said in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. And Jesus said to her, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father, but go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and to your Father, to my God and your God. And Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and that he had said these things to her. Now I want to stop there. We're going to end up making it through the end of this chapter, but I want to stop there and just think about Mary. I want you to get in, my, in your mind what's going on with her. I mean, she is sobbing. She's not just a tear here and there. She's not emotional because some, some moving thing happened in a movie that just made her feel a little sad. I mean, she is sobbing. She is wailing out. I mean, she is, this is a cry that, that, that uh, I mean, this is the worst thing that's ever happened. And she is tore up. And she is just letting it go. She's there. She is distraught. And then she looks in this tomb and she sees two angels. And I just want you to think about this. She looks in there and she sees, sees these two angels. And every other person that I know of in Scripture, when they encountered an angel, a heavenly being... They react in fear. I think Mary is so caught up in what's going on. Either she doesn't recognize them or they have, have appeared to look just like humans. I, I don't know which. But I mean, if, if they looked like men, I'd be wondering, how'd you get in there? Because nobody was here just a second ago. When, when Peter and John were in here, it's empty. How'd you get in here? But here's these two guys. She doesn't react at all. Hey, why are you weeping? And she turns to, my, my Lord is gone. Hey, he's gone. Where are they taking him? And she's distraught and she turns around and she sees someone else standing there and she sees him and she's, it's kind of ironic if you think about it because the guy she's looking for is the guy she's asking, where do they put him? Did you take him? Where's his body? But Jesus knows he's standing there. She's, I mean, she is, she is so consumed in this mourning, in this, in this sadness and being distraught in, in all that's missing in her world that she can't see all that's going on around her. And Jesus says to her, Mary. And as soon as he said those words, as soon as he said her name, she hears it, she knows it. And that morning, that, that sense of, of, of sadness and, 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 being, and being just empty and, and, and feeling so introverted and, and how in the world could this happen to, to my Savior, but it's really about her. How could this happen all of a sudden, all of that, 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 that terrible feeling turned to celebration immediately. And she, she just clings hold of him. She holds on to him 
You know, she is desperate for his presence. Even in his death, she wanted his physical presence. She got up that morning before it was light. She goes to the tomb and she's going to do something to his body. She's not, she's going to do something to, to treat his body well. I mean, he was already wrapped up, had 75 or 100 pounds of spices, depending on which translation you look at, has 75 or 100 pounds of spices wrapped up in these linens all over his body to keep him from just stinking and decaying. He'd had a, he'd had a proper burial already, but this was her Jesus. You know, this was, this was the man that had cast out seven demons from her, and she had to go and she had to have a part in, in, in doing this honor to him. She was hung up on this physical presence. And when she gets there, the thing that drove her nuts was that his body was gone. And when his body's gone, she goes and tells people about it and she is distraught. Of course, they get upset too. But they stop and they think about what's going on. John believes, you know. She's, she's upset. She's going to hang out at the garden all day long. She's going to sit at that tomb wondering what happened to his body all day long. Because all she can think about is this physical presence of Jesus. Even his dead body was enough for her. Now, I don't want you to hear me bashing her too hard. I don't want you to hear me saying that there's anything wrong with her mourning and and being saddened by this. But I do want you to understand that there there was a problem here. I mean, she loved Jesus with a deep devotion. She did. And you can understand why. I mean, if Jesus has done an amazing work in your life, you'll know what it's like to, to love Jesus because of what he's done. He cast out seven demons from her. Now, I don't know if you've ever been possessed by a demon. I've been fortunate enough never to experience that. At least I know. I mean, I've never thrown myself into the fire, and I've never cut on myself, and I've never done all these crazy things that people do when they're possessed. It's a real thing that really happens. My, my head has never turned in full circles, and I've never spit out green pea soup. I've never done those things. I've been fortunate. But it's a real thing that happens. And she had seven that were tormenting her. And Jesus cast them out. And I can tell you, having had experience in sin myself and knowing what it is to be lost in this darkness and just be being stuck in this miry clay, when, when he grabs hold of you and takes you out, you know it and you love him for it. And she had this deep and passionate and desire and, and, and abiding love for her Savior. And so I don't want you to hear me saying anything bad necessarily about Mary. But here was the problem. She had begun to turn it around to be about herself. Now, I don't want to push this too far because it doesn't explicitly say this in the Scripture. But I think we can easily look at, at who we are as, as sinful fallen people. And understand that, that, that this isn't probably too far from the truth. You see, Mary, much like us, was mourning, not because she was worried about what Jesus was happening to Jesus on the other side, but because she didn't get to be with him in the same way anymore. Why do you mourn when people die? If you're a believer, you might mourn because they weren't saved, and you know what awaits them. But even as believers, we often mourn and deal with sadness and can't move past even believers dying because we lost something. I mean, when people hurt us, when our feelings are hurt, are we mad at them because they are who they are or because they did something to us? 
Oh, I can't believe that person would do that to me. See, we think we're better than that. And the reality is, is that when we deal with pain and frustration and, 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 and bitterness and sadness, most of the time, much of the time, I should say, not all of the time, but much of the time it's because things aren't measuring up to what we expect. We make it about ourselves. So I don't think it's too far from the truth to understand that Mary is so distraught about Jesus' body because she's not getting to do the thing that she had intended to do that very morning. She's not able to honor him. A very noble gesture, gesture, a very good thing to do. She's not able to honor him by treating his body. He's gone. But even the Jews didn't believe that they were still there in that body. But she's thinking about what she had to do. And then, and then she hears these words, or this word, her name, Mary. And all of that, all of that mourning turns to celebration. And, and all of a sudden, she has got the Jesus that she wanted right here in front of her. And she grabs hold of him and she is not going to let him go. There's nothing that's going to make her let him go. Now, there's a lot of theologians who come to this passage where Jesus says, don't cling to me, I haven't ascended to the Father yet. And they talk about, well, Jesus was pure at this point and he couldn't be touched by sinful people. But that's wrong. And I'll tell you why it's wrong. Because if you read in Matthew, when, when Jesus revealed himself to, these, to the women who were at the tomb, when he, when he showed himself to the women at the tomb, it says that they clung to his feet and they worshipped him. They touched him. Was Mary not allowed? When John, or when Jesus stood in the, in the house and revealed himself to Thomas, he says, put your hand in my side. He didn't say, oh, I can't be touched. He wasn't afraid of being touched. Mary was clinging to him because she didn't want to let him go. She didn't want to, she didn't want to lose her Jesus again. She didn't want him to be gone from her. She wanted to be close to him and to have, to have this intimate fellowship with him, this fellowship that she had known as she followed him. But Jesus' work wasn't done. He had more to do. He, he, in fact, his, his purpose in coming to earth, it, it might have been fulfilled, but that wasn't the end of all that God is doing. You see, if, if Mary had clung to him and, and, and just never let him go, then, then his work would have stopped. That would have been the end of it. But Jesus didn't come just to die and raise again. He came to die and raise again so that God in his ultimate purpose could make the earth new. And he could restore his creation. So that the ultimate purpose that God was doing, you know, Jesus Christ had to die. And he had to rise again. And these are very special things that happen for us. But that's not where the work finished. The work is coming to an end in the future when Jesus comes back and he makes his home with us. And he says that he's going to bring down that new heaven. He's going to bring down that new earth. And, and God is going to be our God and we are going to be his people. That's what he's moving towards. That's what he's moving to. And he says to Mary, you can't cling to me because my work's not done. You can't hold on to me. I, I, I can't stay here. I have to rise. I have to go back to the Father. I have to ascend to Him. The Spirit has to come. My people will be gathered. And, and the work will be completed, but I can't stay here with you. And He confronts her with this great love, but He also reveals to her her own selfishness. Don't cling to me. 
but go and tell my brothers. See, he not only confronted her with her selfishness, but he gave her a job to do. And Mary, who woke up that morning with a plan, mourning and sad, she was distraught, upset, and the morning only seemed to get worse until she saw her Jesus. This woman who was tore up leaves that garden celebrating because Jesus revealed himself to her. He showed himself to her and gave her a job to do. Go and tell my brothers. These men that he had been calling friends, these, these men that he said, you're not my servants. No longer do I call you servant, but I call you friend. Now he's referring to them as brothers. It's part of the family. I'm going to ascend to my father and your father. You see the connection? No, no longer is there a distinction necessarily. I mean, obviously he's Jesus and we're his people. But it's my father and your father. My God and your God. There's a connection there. there there's, there's a familiarity. There's, there's a, 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 a connecting a, t- together. We're in the same place. I've got to go and do this thing. But you go and tell them. And so Mary, this woman who was all upset and, and just wrapped up in her selfishness, suddenly is thinking about something bigger and better. And she goes and she tells these disciples all that Jesus had said to her. Well, Jesus didn't stop that day at revealing himself to her. He then reveals himself to his disciples. In verse 19, it says this. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, it's still that that Sunday, Easter, that first Easter Sunday. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side, and then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he said said that, he had breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. Now, here's here's the deal. I mean, these guys are scared to death. They're sitting in a house. The doors are locked. They don't want anybody coming in and messing with them. They don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. Their lives are, they just don't know what's up. They don't know what's going to be happening. And and they're scared. I mean, they are afraid. And really in their mind, they probably had plenty of justifications for it. I mean, at the beginning of the week, at the beginning of the last week, Jesus comes into Jerusalem and people are crying out, Hosanna, Hosanna. And they're praising him and they're treating him as a king. And that same group of people at the end of the week, they're crying out, crucify him, crucify him, and they're condemning him. And Jesus, just a couple of nights before, the the very night that he was arrested, tried, condemned, and sent to the cross the very next morning, that night that all of that began, Jesus said, people are going to hate you because of me. Now imagine what was going through their mind. They probably had plenty of justification for it. They probably had plenty of reasons in their own mind to be afraid. And there they sit. You know who they were thinking about? Themselves. Selfishly considering themselves. Forgetting completely that Jesus had said, this is going to happen. Well, when did Jesus tell them that he was going to die and rise again? Matthew chapter 16, verse 21 tells us. It says says that... From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests 
and scribes and be killed. And on the third day, be raised. He wasn't keeping it a secret. He wasn't keeping this from them. In fact, he had said, Peter, who do, who do you say that I am? And Peter said, you're the, you're the Christ, the Son of the living God. He says, this is what I'm going to build my church on. And then he begins to tell them his mission and his purpose and the work that he's going to do. And Peter, in, in just the way that Peter does things, you know, he pulls Jesus aside. Hey, Jesus, man, don't, don't be telling people that. Come on. I mean, really? They're not going to follow you if they think that something bad's going to happen to you. And Jesus looks at Peter and he says, get behind me, Satan. See, this is the will of God. This, this is the thing that I must do. I mean, Mary, she, she dealt with the same problem that morning. She's clinging to Jesus because she wants to stay in his physical presence. But you can't. I've got to go. She was in the same boat with Peter. Don't tell people the bad stuff. Make them feel good about you. Make them like you with all the good things you can do. Why don't, why don't you go out there and, and heal some more people? Why don't you go out there and teach in this powerful way, you know, that, that way you do it. But don't tell them all this bad stuff. Nobody wants to think about the bad stuff. We like feeling good. Nobody's going to follow you. Get behind me. Get out of my way. I've got a work to do. I've got a job to do. He had taught him about it. He, he didn't keep it secret. And here they sit in this, in, this, in this house, locked up, afraid, scared to death because these Jews, they think they're going to come in and kill them. All the time forgetting that Jesus said, I'm going to raise on the third day. I will be back. Oh, they were selfish. And, and, and here, out of nowhere, I mean, the doors are locked. Out of nowhere, Jesus pops in here. He just appears out of nowhere. And here they are. Well, where'd you come from? And he shows them the, the, the marks on his hands and the, and the hole in his side. He's like, peace be with you. Imagine, that was the very thing they needed most. I mean, it, it is a Jewish greeting. Shalom, you know, peace be with you. That's a Jewish greeting. But those guys, they needed peace because they were experiencing turmoil because all they could think about was what was going on with them. All they could think about was themselves. And they needed peace. And Jesus comes and he says, peace be with you. I mean, imagine seeing your risen Savior, those guys that were joined or, or that were at that house together scared to death about all that was going on, were suddenly bold. And their lives, their lives changed drastically from that moment. You see, they were selfishly cowering in fear. And Jesus said, I've got a mission for you to do. You're going to go and you're going to tell people about me. As the Lord has sent, as God has sent me, I am going to send you. And he does this cool but maybe crazy thing that seems to us anyway. And he leans on them and he breathes. And you know what I think of when I, when I, when I hear that? When God created the man out of the dust and he formed him, he breathed. And the man came to life. Now, I don't know that's exactly what happened in that moment, but Jesus says, receive the Holy Spirit. I mean, I can't help but, but think it, at this moment, at this very moment, these men who had been dead were now alive. These men who had been blind spiritually could now see. These men who couldn't hear truth before could hear it and understand it. These men who had an earthly and worldly wisdom were given a wisdom and discernment that only comes from God. 
He breathed on them. Receive the Holy Spirit. And man, there's been theologians debate this about, oh, well, the Holy Spirit didn't really come till Pentecost. Well, I don't know what Jesus meant then when he said receive the Holy Spirit. They got the Holy Spirit in some form, in some fashion. This was a, a fulfillment of what Jesus had told them when he said, when, I, when I'm going away, a spirit is going to come. You know, maybe, maybe on the day of Pentecost, there was this amazing baptism in the Spirit, this, this power given to them in the Spirit. But why else would Jesus say, receive the Holy Spirit? Other than that they were being indwelt by God Himself. They were being made alive. Receive the Spirit. And He says, alright, now, you're going to forgive sins. And when you forgive them, they're going to be released. And when you don't forgive them, they're, gonna, they're not. And, and people have debated that. And they get upset about it. And they think, well, those, you know, of course, it, it comes in a history of, a, of, of the Roman Catholic Church where the Roman Catholic Church says we are the ones that bestow forgiveness. We are the ones that have the right to say who's forgiven and who's saved and who's not saved. The church has the responsibility of that. Well, that's a lie. That's a lie. The Holy of Holies was, was, was where the high priest had gone. He had, he had gone and represented the people there. He was the mediator for the people. And when he went in there, he would do his business with God and he'd come out and the sins would be atoned for and there was this, this work that he would do where he would mediate between God and man. When Jesus Christ died, that curtain was torn and the Holy of Holies was open to all people where that Jesus Christ is now our only mediator between us and God. He is my mediator. He is your mediator. There is no other person that stands between us. We are connected to God through the death and burial and resurrection of Jesus Christ. You see, and that's the hope we have. It's a lie to think that there's some man that we have to find and, and, and bow before and, and exalt because uh, they misunderstood the Scripture. It's a lie. You see, really, it'd be better translated that the, the sins that you forgive have already been forgiven. You see, all they're doing is recognizing what Jesus has already done. As, as people go and live their life, you know, as lost people, we, we sin because that's who we are. When we are unconverted, we, we, we're going to act like unconverted people. That's just the reality of it. We can make all the laws we want. We can vote for all of the, 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 the hey, let's get rid of abortion. Let's make a law. Let's, let's keep homosexual marriage out. Let's, let's make a law. Let's, let's keep all of these things the way we want them. And I'm not, I'm not against that. When I have a chance to vote for those things, I vote for them. But I can't moralize anybody through a law. I can't legislate morality. I can't change people's lives by giving them a law to follow. You can't either. And lost people, you know what they're going to do? They're going to act like lost people. And God's enabled us through the power of His Spirit. He's enabled us to see that. And that's what He's telling those disciples that day. He's saying to them, you're going to recognize who's who. You're going to be able to see people who, who are repentant. And when you proclaim the gospel, you're going to be able to say, they're forgiven? based on the work that I did on the cross. When, when you say, hey, you're condemned in your sin, it's not because you're judging them. It's because their sin and lack of faith and repentance condemns them. And so here we are in this politically correct society, this place where, oh, you can't say anything against anyone. Where sexual immorality, that's a hot button issue, that's a hot topic these days. Sexual immorality is rampant. And it's okay to talk against porn. Because husbands who look at porn on behind their wives' back, those guys are just, those guys are scum. They're bums. But you can't say anything against a homosexual. Because those people, that's just the way God made them. No, it's sin. It's sin. 
when they're condemned in sin. Not because I say so, but that's the reason Jesus died, was sin. And then he says, believe in me. And if you don't believe in me, you're already condemned. And I can recognize that. You can recognize that. Not because we're holier than thou or more righteous, but because we have the Spirit revealing truth to us, showing us what's right and wrong. Giving us an understanding that others don't have. Now, I'm not telling you to run out and start condemning every homosexual person. You know, I've got homosexual people in my family, and I love them. And I long for them to meet Jesus, to, to be forgiven by Him. I don't want you to run out and find the next pedophile that you can find. They're scum. And I don't want you to beat them down just because the, 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 you just don't approve of them. I want you to share the gospel with them and then beat them down if they don't repent. You know, if they don't repent and they continue in their way, then beat them down. But share the gospel with them. Let them hear the truth. Because you know what? Apart from Christ, we're all the same. We're the same people they were. But in His resurrection, in the power that we have in His life, in the power that we have in, in Him giving us His Spirit, we can recognize sin. And we can say it's forgiven because He has forgiven it. And we can say it's condemned because He is condemning it. It's not our own choice. It's not our own, it's not our, our own judgment. It's what He gives us. It's what he, it's what he enlightens us with. But He tells them, this is the mission. This is what you're going to go do. You're going to go and proclaim the truth. And you're going to call people to faith and repentance. And when they reject Me, they're going to stand condemned. And when they believe, you're going to congratulate them and you're going to welcome them into the family because of what I've done. And these men who sat there selfishly cowering in fear were changed that day. And they were given boldness. And they were given a job to do because Jesus Christ revealed Himself to them. Not because they decided to do something different, but because Jesus showed Himself. You know, and that's not where it stopped. You know, of course, Thomas, the, the next thing that you can read about is Thomas. I mean, Thomas gets a bad rap. But he wasn't with the disciples that day. Look in verse 24. Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. And so the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place in my finger into the mark of, of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Now, I just I think about that. I mean, Thomas has just laid out, I mean, this is, this is it. If, if Jesus doesn't do this for me, I'm not believing him. I mean, he's making demands that we have no right to make. None. We, don't, we, we can't tell God what he's going to do. We can't, we can't look at him and say, you better do this or I'm just done with you. That's going to get you somewhere, but it's not going to be a good place. It's not, it's, it's not going to lead to blessings, that's for sure. <clears throat> and so eight days later, his disciples were inside again. Now, now just think about this. Here the disciples were cowering in fear. They're, they're afraid. They see Jesus, and the first thing they do is when they see Thomas, we saw him, he's alive. And they begin to pro proclaim the truth. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, same, same scenario, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. And then, he put, and then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands, and put your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. And Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believe. Thomas, he walks in that day. Now here's the reason not to miss church. Don't ever miss church. You want to know why? 
Because when you miss church, you miss Jesus. I mean, I say that kind of jokingly, but the reality is, is that he puts us together for a reason. And he does special things when we're together. He works through his people to, to, to benefit his people. He equips us through the gathering of the saints. He brings us together. We each have gifts. We each have abilities that we can build one another up and we can grow his kingdom. So don't miss church because if you miss church, you'll miss Jesus. You'll miss out on what he's doing. And, and there, there's a really practical thing about that. The people that aren't here this morning, they're missing whatever God had might use this message for in their life. You're here. You're going to get something out of it. I trust that, because, not because I think I'm great at this, but because I think the Lord works. But when you're disconnected, it's kind of like a stick. When you put a stick in the fire, the stick burns. You take that same stick out and you try to let it just sit by itself, the flame will dwindle, it'll turn to coals, and eventually will extinguish. That same stick, if left in the fire, will burn until it's completely consumed. We need to be together. We need to spend time together. We need to live life with one another. It's one of the reasons we emphasize community so heavily in this church. And I'm just going to tell you, I, I'm gonna, this is going to be blunt, but it's the truth. If you're not experiencing community with this group, if you're, if you're regular here and you don't feel like you have community with this group, at some level, it's your own fault. Because we have people that gather almost every day of the week who are living life together, who are loving on one another, who are meeting needs for one another, who are, who are helping one another. You know what? The reality is they've become friends. And they matter to one another. And there's things that happen almost every day of the week. And if you want to be a part of that, if you want to experience that community, if you want to experience what it is to really live life together, all you got to do is show up. Find out when things are going on. I know the women gather here every Wednesday night at 8.30. The guys are gathering over at Matt's apartment every Wednesday night at 8.30. We're just reading through Ephesians and we're talking about what it says. We're praying together. They're gathering here and praying. I think they're going to be starting some sort of study soon. Sunday nights, we have a Bible study that meets at Craig and, or not Craig, it meets at uh, Brent Heather's house. So I almost forgot your name. That's crazy. Meets at Brent and Heather's house. But see, I love them and they love me and so it's okay. I don't know their name, but meets at their house and we, and we eat together and we laugh and we have fun and we study the Bible together. And we, we've, we've done things where we reach out to the community together. We, we've done things where, and we're about to face some changes that are going to be challenging, that, that are going to push us. We're starting a Bible study on Friday night at Kyle's house. That all you have to do is just show up. There's no walls. We're not keeping people out. But we're loving on one another. Whoever, whoever will spend time with us, we'll, we'll love on them. We'll challenge them. We'll see that, that we'll, we'll challenge them to, to follow Jesus, to follow this example. Do something revolutionary. Follow Amy and my example. Open your house every night of the week and just say, whoever wants to come over, come over. We don't have to be the only people doing that. Follow that example. And you know what? I bet eventually, it may not happen at first, but if you give it some time, People want to belong. We want to be loved. The reality is the thing you need most is to quit wanting to be loved and begin to love others like Jesus loved you. You see, and then those things that you receive, the, that, that great blessing you receive because you're part of this community, you'll be returning. You'll be giving back. Be, it's an amazing thing. 
but it only happens because we actually take time to be together. This is such a small part of what this church is about. Minuscule. Is it important? Absolutely. But this is an hour and a half or two hours out of however many are in a week. To really be a part, you've got to show up. You've got to make it a priority. I don't know what Thomas was doing that day. I don't know where he was off to. I don't know what he was about that day, but he wasn't with the disciples. And when Jesus showed up, he missed out. And he doubted. And all of a sudden, it became all about him. You know what? God showed himself to you. Jesus showed himself to you. If he doesn't do the exact same thing for me, I'm not going to believe. And he starts making demands. And you know who that's about? It's not about Jesus. It's not about the disciples. It's about Thomas. And he lives and, and, and thinks with this selfish motivation. Did you notice this? All three of these people start the day. They start the day selfishly motivated and things aren't going their way. They're upset. Things aren't happening the way they expected them to. They're afraid. He didn't get to be a part of all that happened with the other disciples. He's mad and upset and he doubts. You see, I don't, I don't think Thomas' biggest problem was his doubt. The other disciples, when they first heard the story, this unbelievable story, they didn't believe either. In fact, Mark tells us in his gospel, he says that when Mary came and told him, they refused to believe. They wouldn't believe it. So I don't think that's his biggest problem. His biggest problem is he was selfish and demanded God to meet him on his own terms. Jesus shows up. Put your, put your fingers here. Put your hand here. And you know what Thomas did? This guy who was selfishly motivated, demanding God to act in a certain way, acting as if he was the one in authority, that same man submits and worships. He gave up his authority. He recognized he didn't have any real authority and he submitted and he says, my Lord, as somebody who tells you what to do, has authority to command you, has authority to rule over you. My Lord and my God, my whole life is to be about you. You are the central focus of all I am in, in my thoughts and my, in my dreams. You are my God. Because Jesus revealed himself to Thomas. It would be great if Jesus revealed himself to us, wouldn't it? You see, he's still at this work. In fact, he says to Thomas, he says, Thomas, you believe because you have seen me. But blessed is he who believes and has not seen me. You see, I don't think, there's not a special place in heaven for us. I think there should be, you know, because I'll be there with you guys and I want that special place. But that's selfish. There's not a special place in heaven for people who are saved and never saw Jesus. But we can know the same blessings of his salvation and the revelation that comes in knowing Jesus even though we have never seen him. Peter, writing to a church who is suffering, Writing to, writing to a people who are, are, are dealing with horrendous things, who are dealing with, with acts that you and I can't even imagine, persecution that would, that would probably end us. 
says to them, though you have not seen him, speaking about Jesus, though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible. I want you to imagine Mary, this, this great and deep love. She, her, her love for Jesus stuck with that personal or that, that physical presence. It resulted in mourning and sadness. But recognizing him to be alive and, and, and following in his will and becoming the person that, that she did because of his revelation to her, it, it, that joy it turned to, or, or that, that sadness turned to joy. And Peter says to these people who had never seen Jesus, who had never known him, but, but were dealing with terrible, horrible things that were dying because they believed in him. He says to them, you love him even though you haven't seen him. And that love, because it's not tied to some selfish motivation, because it's not tied to the life that you want, it results in inexpressible joy. You and I can know this blessing too. We're the same. We've never seen Jesus. But our love for Him can lead to inexpressible joy. It, it can be just like Mary, who went to, who went to the garden tomb sad, and distraught, and left it celebrating. It too can, can bring to us peace, even though everything in the world around us is falling apart. Philippians 4, 7, Paul writes, And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Actually, if you read the verse before that, verse 6, it tells us to, to, to lay all of our petitions at the feet of the Lord, to, to, to pray and, and trust that He's going to work. And the peace of God which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. You see, we don't have to be afraid. We don't have to be distraught. We don't have to be uh, worried and anxious. Because the blessing of the resurrection of Jesus brings great peace, peace that we can't even explain. And it can rule in our hearts. We've never seen Him, but we can know that blessing. <laughs> And, and, and it just continues on. Romans 5.3. Paul's writing, he says, More than that, we rejoice, or we rejoice in our sufferings. Now, I don't know how many of you get excited when you have to deal with the problems of life. I don't, woohoo, I get to suffer again. Man, I'm so excited. I hate my life, but man, it's going to do me good. Most of us don't react that way. But Paul says, more than that, we can rejoice in our suffering Knowing that suffering produces endurance, endurance produces character. See, it changes us, it grows us, it makes us, it makes us better. Character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame. Another way to translate that is that hope does not disappoint. Hope in the Christian worldview is a confident expectation in the things that Jesus Christ is doing. You see, we have that hope because our, our, our Savior is not dead in the grave. We have a Savior that's alive and, and ruling at the right hand of His Father with all authority and with the power to fulfill His promises. And it results in hope, knowing that Jesus Christ is who He says He is. You see, He's revealing Himself and we can experience those blessings even today. I want you to think with me as we come to a close. I just want you to think with me. Now, most of you probably... Don't even pay attention to the way I title these sermons. If you get online and you look, you'll see it. But as we entered this series where Jesus Christ was <clears throat> was coming to the end and it was it was the he was arrested and tried and all of that, I began to title the sermons specifically: arrested, tried and denied, exposed, mocked and condemned, crucified, finished, risen. And I named them all past tense things because they were things that happened in the past. They were things that happened in a moment in history. But I named this one 
revealing. You know why? Because it continues today. When John wrote this book, in fact, in the next two verses, when John wrote this book, he did it with, with, with one thing in mind. He wanted people to believe. People who had never seen Jesus, who weren't there when all of this stuff happened. But he says, now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Just like everyone else that has seen Jesus and Jesus has revealed himself to us, you too can know the blessings of Jesus Christ. He is alive. And he says, come to me, believe in me, look at me, I'm here. He's showing himself to us. He's revealing himself. And because of that, we can know these amazing blessings. But you will only know those blessings when you trust in him. John, he did so many things. He did so many things. We can't even really write them all down. But I share these things with you so that you can believe. Because John believed that not only had he seen Jesus, but that Jesus was continuing to reveal himself to people, even in his day, just before, just before he wrote this letter, and that he would continue to reveal himself to people until the end. You can know Jesus. And there's a lot of us that sit around and we, we talk and we think and, and, and act like, oh yeah, I heard that story and I, I believe that story. It is an unbelievable story. A dead man came back to life. How can we believe that? Because he's shown it to us to be true. Because he has revealed himself to us. Think about who you were. Who you would be without Him. Maybe like Mary, you would be selfishly just, just upset with life because it wasn't going your way. Maybe, maybe you would be like those disciples and living in fear, scared to death of everything around you. Maybe like Thomas, you would be demanding God to meet you at your own terms. And if he didn't, forget him. I, I don't know who you were. But I do know that when Je Jesus reveals himself to you, he changes you. He makes you new. He blesses you. Every head bowed and every eye closed. If we take this too far, 